Hi, you're listening to Ember Island Airwaves. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And we're going to be discussing the very exciting episode, uh, The Ultimatum, which just aired last week on a Friday. I, I'll offer my just immediate thoughts. This, this episode for me was extremely difficult to watch. It was uh, very emotionally taxing. Um, I watched it first alone and then with somebody else who hadn't seen it, and both times it was very... Uh, it was a it's it's a heart heart wrenching episode for several reasons. It's not just uh, you know one moment. There's a lot of you know things throughout this episode that really it just sort of escalates you know from about the halfway point on uh, in in emotion and intention. And so uh, yeah. So how did you how did you feel about the episode? Um, I feel the exact same way. I also watched it uh, twice the, under the exact same circumstances. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's funny. It starts out like fairly. Uh, lighthearted with mm-hmm. uh, Mako and Bolin's kind of escape from Bossing Say. It's, um, it, yeah, it, it's not like I say lighthearted. It's not funny, real. I mean, it, there are jokes, but it's not like it doesn't have like an adventurous spirit. Um, and obviously, what's going on at Bossing Say with the looting of the city and everything's on fire? They're trying to make know. that as as lighthearted as they can, given the context. But I I feel like exactly, that, yeah. that first part is supposed to be funny just so they can. Otherwise, this episode would feel like something out of Breaking Bad. Or, well, exactly, know. yeah. And I think it's... Yeah, exactly. It, it, the reason it, it works is because we don't have the context of the message that they were given until Korra hears it. Mm-hmm. I feel like if... No, I feel like none of that would work if we knew where Zaheer was going because we would kind of be like, all right, this is all just wasting time. Can we just, you know... There would be a sense of urgency, whereas I think what what is so successful about this episode is it gets you into a kind of a state of complacency, especially without that reunion scene in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then it hits you with this, like, no, like, this is this is going to happen now. We have to get to the Air Temple right now. Right, right. It's very high stakes, and I think it's cool um, the way they do that. And, and even the first part, though, even just getting out of the city, they do raise the, you know, it's they sort of uh, introduce some tension there where Mako and Bolin go and save their family um, from the, the apartment complex. Uh, so that was cool, too. I mean, I, I, I like that whole scene. I think I think their grandmother is a really interesting... Um, sort of a sidestep from the usual grandmothers we get in this series that are very nice and caring and nurturing. Uh, she's none of those things. She's, I mean, she cares about her family, but she's also like crazy and devoted. You know, she feels about like a. And I know old people like this. This is a very. I like this character. She's she's indicative of of certainly people that exist in the world who you know are just irrational and stubborn in many ways. I, she reminds me of my grandmother certainly, um, mm. where just certain things would you know, beyond all rationale and reason, just she would, you know, not do the thing that would, like, you know, make her life better. Um, uh, and so I, I like this moment, especially as Bolin, you know, gives up arguing with her and just throws her over his shoulder. Um, yeah. And her having the picture of the Earth Queen reminded me of, like, um, old Catholic ladies who have pictures of the Pope all oh, over certainly. their house. Oh, Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of hints of, like, North Korea here, too, and, and the Great Leader. Yeah, certainly, like, yeah. Um, and, and I think that's cool. I really like the scene where they're all in the airship and they're all looking out at the, as Ba Sing Se is burning. I mean, it's really a, an intense scene. Um, and then it takes, you know, and then they go across the desert and they catch up on the story that we have already seen where, um, you know, they crashed in the desert, uh, and we know that Zuko and, and all of them are, are at, uh, the Misty Palms Oasis. So that was really exciting. And then we finally got to, you know, and characters who don't know each other all that well got to meet one another, uh, or don't know each other at all. So Mako and Bolin got to meet Zuko, and Tanrak was there, and uh, you know, um, 
their grandmother got to meet Asami and Korra, and that was awkward and funny and sweet and, mm. and things like that. So that was really cool. But uh, then things really kicked into gear as they delivered the ultimatum um, to pull the name of the episode. Um, so as uh, here and the Red Lotus have have stated that the Avatar has to give herself up, uh, or the uh, Airbenders get it. Um, how did you feel like from this from this point on? What's uh, what were your thoughts or what were your immediate what was your immediate reaction? Well, it's it's funny. Um, I didn't expect such a large po- uh, portion of the episode to be devoted to what goes down at the Air Temple, but I, I figured with the title of the episode and um, just given the way that Korra usually works as a character, that most of the episode would be kind of devoted to this decision that she mm-hmm. has to make. And based sure, on this way sure. that this type of story usually goes, it's usually like when a hero is confronted with this kind of dilemma, it's like you have to give yourself up or these your people you care about will be hurt. They have to, it's a big deal and they have to spend a lot of time mm-hmm. kind of thinking about it. And she does, she goes and talks in the spirit world uh, and with, with Iroh. Mm-hmm. And that's a great scene. And I love Zuko's reaction to hearing yeah, his on the spirit that, world. I gotta say, that moment really has sold me on old Zuko, I finally, there's a, there's a, somebody online took, um, Zuko's expressions from the, from the original series and put it next to his expression when he says, you talk to my uncle. And it was exactly the same. And I was like, that was very, very clever because they have now officially tied it back, not just through name dropping and, you know, relations that we know to be true, but aren't like visible or, or shown. Um, we actually saw it in his face and that was really incredible. And I actually, well, my favorite part of, of that back and forth is that Zuko, um, by the way, it's, it's apparently the, uh, even if you're a female fire lord, you're still a fire lord. You're not, there's no a special designation that was, I found that interesting. Um, but, uh, so Zuko is talking to Korra and, uh, she asks him what, you know, Aang would do in that situation. And his first, his first, um, idea is that Aang would probably give himself up. And as soon as he said that, that again, that again really tied it in. And I was like, that's, as far as we know about Aang, that's exactly what he would do. He's constantly trying to leave everyone else aside so that he can go and deal with it on his own. So that, um, which is, you know, partially a fault. I mean, he, the reason he succeeds in the end is because he works with his friends to really deal with the, with deal with the issue. But certainly it's in his character to go and sort of self-sacrifice, um, for the good of, you know, other people's safety. Uh, and not just about the airbenders, but just in general, that seemed like his, his perspective on, on life. So I thought that was really, um, really awesome as, as far as the Aang that we knew and familiar with. And what I really liked, I agree. What I really liked about this whole scene was the idea that what Iroh tells her that you, you should go talk to Zuko because, you know, they're, they started out as enemies, but they grew to become best friends. Mm-hmm. They grew to become best friends. Um, the, the connections to the previous series have always seemed like I've been okay with them. I've liked them when they do them really well. Um, but I think this is one of the first moments where we get kind of that uh, well, big reveal about, except, until, uh, except for the, the flashback that they, they had in the first season, mm-hmm. a big reveal about stuff that happened in the adult lives of the characters from The Last Airbender. Mm-hmm. And I especially loved this one because um, it, it just does, it's just a sweet idea that... Um, because certainly you get hints of that near the end of The Last Airbender, of the relationship between, oh, between sure. Aang and Zuko. But I love that there's this confirmation that they did 
Kuro to become best friends, and Zuko knows exactly what. It, and I also liked that apparently Zuko is the person who knows Aang the best, and not Katara. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's funny that um, that he suggests that you go, but it, it, it's it's not really surprising um, considering that while Katara certainly would have an idea, um, and she's often one to give speeches and advice and things like that. Zuko, you know, is just you know he's such a complex character, and so his perspective on the world and you know i don't know how much time katara really spent trying to analyze ang but that's all zuko did both as an enemy and as a friend um trying to figure out how to be a good person how to do the right thing what what ang's next move would be i mean that was his whole life um that's true and cora uh, uh, katara is so you know fiercely individualistic you know she was very, very much about being her own woman and, and doing things her own way. Right, right, In, in, in a way, and uh, much like Korra, actually. Mm-hmm. There's a direct line to be drawn from Katara to Korra in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, and I think that that's been, that's been really cool, too, is to see this um, similar but different, you know, certainly Korra's a different character uh, in many ways than she's, I don't want to say less emotional, but uh, less, um, she's more hot-headed, uh, and she's emotional, yeah. she's emotional in a very different way than... Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think Katara was always driven by... by um, uh, a certain optimism, like, lo- yeah, optimism, yeah. and then and that that also comes out of this kind of this loss and this and this sometimes regret, mm-hmm. uh, and because of what happened to her family. Whereas you're right, Cora, who has who never really had, had to go through that, she has that same. It manifests itself often in the same way, but it comes from the, just this frustration and this anger. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, you're right. It's interesting to see the the parallels between them and the way that they handle these very different backgrounds in very similar ways she really comes off like a sheltered privileged kid i mean it's really an interesting dynamic because you know she was the daughter of the chief so she was the highest status you could possibly be in that tribe she lived in privacy and got to train and do what she wanted she was the avatar um and then you know and not only is she privileged because she's a bender and they have higher status in society it seems like that's what the whole first season is about um, but also she's just in general just privileged, whereas Katara never felt like that. She was just someone. She was just some kid, you know, so she had to work her way from the beginning to the end. And not only that, you know, Katara already had disadvantages because she was a woman and, and people didn't take her seriously, but Korra's never faced that in this world. There's never anyone who's been like, oh, you're a girl. You can't do this, or you know. Um, and they, But that definitely happened to Katara, especially, you know, in the northern... Water Tribe, and I think that that's really cool, too. Um, but, you know, even towards the end of... Actually, no, this is really interesting. Towards the end of Avatar The Last Airbender, um, there's a lot of really interesting, really awful things that Azula says to her. You know, he, she calls her a peasant over and over again, uh, filthy peasant and all this awful, awful stuff that, you know, has a lot of undertones of a whole bunch of different things. And uh, it's something they haven't explained... Like, they haven't gone into overtly, but certainly it's been a running theme that certain characters are, you know, especially royalty and stuff, feel like they're of a certain class. Certainly Zuko, um, I think, was an interesting character in that he didn't come off that way, but um, other people certainly do think they're better than others because of, you know, their status in society. And so that's that's been a cool a cool idea. And, you know, well, you, it's interesting that you bring that up because it's Korra is a complete counterpoint to The Last Airbender in that way because all of the heroes in Korra are, start at a... In, at a higher level of status, right, Korra, right. like you said, is the avatar, and Sami is the daughter of this very powerful, rich CEO. And Mako and Bolin obviously start out on the street, but now Bolin's a, a movie star, and and, and they Mako's were the detective, and they were champion star. pro benders as well. Yeah, that's right, and they were they were star athletes. Yeah, 
so all of these heroes and uh, so much of well, I mean, obviously the villain in season one and now in season three, not so much in season two. These villains have all come from the lower the lower class. They they started <laughs> they started at the bottom, right? Um, and it's a bit about kind of the heroes having to suppress that and or at least deal with that from a completely different perspective. Whereas the last Airbender was all about people, the underdogs who came from who came from the bottom, trying to take down the bad guys at the top. Right. Yeah. So, and I think that's what makes ultimately what makes Korra's villains at least a lot more interesting than the villains in the Last Airbender, because they're just a lot more morally complex. Like the you are immediately inclined to be with to side with the underdogs against the big, you know powerful uh head honchos the leaders right i see what you're saying but whereas here you have the reverse so it's harder to exactly yeah you're you kind of have to think about like what what that's what was so great about Amon, who's i think you know like we'll see how this plays out but still my favorite core villain i think is you kind of have to he is the only villain on either of these shows so far where you kind of have to think is he might have a point he actually might be right Right. And the show gets away with it by kind of revealing him to ultimately be a hypocrite because he is a bender. Mm-hmm. But it, that's what's so interesting. Whereas, like the Fire Lord, there's no reason to side with the Fire Lord. He is just evil. You know, he wears a black hat, Nang wears a white hat, mm-hmm. and that's as you know. Your Zuko is as morally complex, I think, as the show as the show gets. And Zuko's a great character, like you said. But I think Quora... well, I think I think even even I think what I mean I I don't want to get too much into like you know obviously the old series but I think that Azula is a really interesting character and in a lot of I know some people have have written her off as just being cartoonishly villain villainous but I I think Ozai was certainly um, I have always said that the big finale of the last um, the la- of the finale of uh, sorry the big showdown um, the the premiere the centerpiece of the finale of the Last Airbender was not the Ozai Aang showdown, but the you know Zuko and Azula and Katara um, fighting uh, in the Last Agni Kai. I think that was the the real moment, and I, I think there were a lot of things that came to light there. There was you had the familial thing going on with Zuko and uh, Azula, uh, where she's really losing it. She's she's been talking about her mother for you know se- you know two seasons now, and you really see how much it's damaged her, and she's really lost it. Um, you have Zuko, obviously, this is his big moment, um, and that's really cool, but then you have a completely different dynamic with Azula and Katara, where Azula's like, I can't believe I'm fighting, you know, this, you know, peasant, this no one, you know, I can't believe this is, like, who I'm dealing with at this point, like, Zuko made sense, this is idiotic, uh, and then, you know, Katara destroys her, which is pretty great, uh, but, so I, there's just this, these two massive conflicts of, you know, whereas the final conflict with Ozai is, like, you know, he's the Avatar and you want to destroy the world, you know, like, that's not, that's not as interesting as a, a, you know, a a conflict there, but I think there's certainly, there's elements of classism, there's elements of a lot of different things going on in that. that And obviously the Ozai fight has the element of, you know, will I kill him or not? And I think that's where that, that's where the moral complexity really comes in there, although they do kind of skirt that issue at the end, (laughs) rather infamously. Um, Um, But you're right, absolutely, I think uh, that fight is, um, I, I really I should watch that again. I haven't seen those episodes in years, but yeah, that, oh. that fight is is. A, I've watched the last Agni Kai. I think upwards of fifty times. It's it's on. <laughs> I think the whole thing is on YouTube and HD. It's it's one of the, the music and the choreography in that fight are without question my favorite moments in the whole series. It's just 
but like Cora, this everything just it's the best. Um, it, it's it's emotional. It's, everything just really works really well. But uh, but coming back to Cora, yeah, and and so you're right. There has been this this sort of flip of that same thing. But I think part part of why it works is that it is the contrast of the previous series, um, as many things in this show are. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was great. I thought the um, I thought uh, the, the the moments with, with Zuko were very very cool. Uh, there is a moment we get shortly afterwards that uh, I think I'm tentatively adding to the list of things I don't trust Suyin about um, when they decide that they have to contact the uh, the Northern Air Temple uh, and they can't reach them because they have a short range radio. So they decide to go to the Metal Clan, uh, Zafu, and use their radio. And as soon as they get there, Sue looks very sad and she says, we couldn't reach them. Uh, and I went, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned that because now I'm starting to come around to your theory on Su Yin because this is absurd. <laughs> this ha- she has to be lying, right? Like, because the instant that they actually... You they know, do try once. ...start working, they... They try they once, reach, but... Yeah. It, but, I mean, and they don't, and it doesn't work. So, I mean, it's possible she was telling the truth, but I also, you know... But she said no one was answering. Like, you would, <laughs> you would think someone would be answering if you have been actually calling all this time. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's not clear how much time they've been calling, and you know, it's possible that no one's around. I mean, Tenzin's out, and uh, the only person who eventually picks up is Milo, etc. So that's certainly possible, but I don't know. Something about it just doesn't. uh... Well, I mean, you would think that at least Pema would be like hanging around. Oh yeah, someone just not doing anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, And to be fair, when we see them all, they're all in different parts of the Air Temple. You know, Kaya's with a bunch of them, and Boomy's with a bunch of them, and you know, so it's. It's possible, but I when she as soon as she said that, I went. You know what? No, I don't. I don't like it. Although to be yeah, and I, and I saw someone else bring up a good point, which is that um, at first I was like, you know what? I maybe she's genuinely concerned because she wouldn't have you know because she says I should have never let Opal go there, and obviously maybe this isn't just this is just isn't something she anticipated to happen. Right. But I saw someone point out that you see Opal being. Uh, uh, threatened. Yep. And then after that point, you don't see her with the group again. Mm-hmm. Oh, good point. And I, I did, go, I did go back and verify that, and I'm pretty sure that's true. When they're trying to get to the Bison, she's not in that group. Huh. So. Well, either they killed her, which yeah, would be I, really yeah, dark. I, I don't. I, I would guess that they probably didn't kill her. And I would. Either this is just kind of an animation thing, and you didn't. They didn't happen to put her there, uh, in the group. Or something else is going on. I'm yeah. starting to come around on this. One thing I wanted to point out that someone pointed out in an image: um, when Zuko bows to um, uh, Mako and Bolin, and Mako and Bolin bow back, um, the way they put their fists in their palms, um, Mako and Bolin were trained in a different style of of uh, bending from Zuko, and Zuko was, like, in the north, and they were in the south, or something. It, the, they correspond to, like, specific martial arts, um, and so the way you would bow in those different parts of um, the countries of origin for those martial arts are reflected in the way they're bowing to each other, um, which is, like, so subtle. Like, who would know that, you know? Um, <laughs> but uh, they have, you know, they have, like, a martial arts consultant on the show, and, and that sort of thing is what they have to continually verify. So, um, so and that leads me to believe for something like um, where Opal is in that final moment, that they wouldn't just leave it out. Like they they care a lot about that level of detail. Um, 
Like, certainly there are frames of the show that you could pick out and be like, oh, everyone looks goofy for some reason. But there aren't, like, sequences that are intentionally screwed up. So I think um, I think that we're going to get some very interesting revelations about the Beifong family that hopefully will manifest themselves in uh, an appearance from Toph maybe in the next next book. I'm not sure. Toph has to come back. I, I, <laughs> they, they've, they've teased it so much. There's no way. I... I I'll be a little surprised if Toph doesn't make a, at least a brief appearance in the, in next week. To next be honest, interesting. I would I would love that because I just want to see at least another tease. Because you're right, Toph is one hundred is as good as guaranteed that Toph is going to show up at some point next season. Yeah, at the very least. But I'll be surprised if they don't set that up maybe a little bit in well, the next episode. Well, you know, I just get the impression that um, it would be really cool to see. You know, I don't know who would deal with. Maybe Tenzin, um, but who would deal with Zaheer? But I think having, um, you know, they those the three they've left alive, <laughs> the creators have left alive here. The three of the original gang they've left alive are all all correspond to um, members of the Red Lotus. You know, you have you have Zuko and and um, uh, Zuko and and Pili, and you have um, Mingwa and Katara, and you have uh, Toph and and Gazan. So theoretically. You could have a showdown with them, and I, I keep pushing this in our like I've said that in a past couple of podcasts. But I think that's actually a viable, you know, assumption to make, or or at least a prediction, just because they've laid some of the groundwork so far. Um, but you know, I'm gonna. It's just my personal, you know, <laughs> fantasy that we'll get to see the original cast back in action. Again. I think that's a pretty good guess, and you know, it's so. Fu- you have to imagine that. I think Toph is probably of the original gang. The most powerful. Oh, yeah. You know, even Aang. No question. No question. I, I don't think Aang, even with the ability to bend all four elements, was even close to as powerful as Toph was with the one. <laughs> um, so you can only imagine, you know, when that was when Toph was a child, how powerful she must be now. Right, right, exactly. Uh, so if she just comes in, she could just, you know, crack a hole in the earth and drop the Red Lotus down. Right, right, exactly. And, and you know, the, the lava bending is all, like, very, you know, fine and well, but. No form of earthbending is useful against Toph. It's just useless. <laughs> There's <laughs> nothing to do there. Um, so I think... Uh, and she used metal bending. By the way, I like metal bending in the show, but no one does it as cool as Toph. I, she always did cooler things. She wrapped, she, created, she made herself into Iron Man instead of punching <laughs> people and throwing them... You know, like, things that we never see. And, you know, they're throwing big metal sheets at each other and stuff in the Metal Clan, and that's fine, but it's not the same. It's not the same. Yeah. At all. I, well, it's become so normalized by this point in their in this universe that, like, yeah, of course you would never think to do something like that if you're a metal bender, probably. Right. Exactly. Um, but like, but of course you. I mean, but certainly Toph would, and uh, I think that's really yeah. cool. Um, but anyway, I haven't. I didn't buy this. Some people have really been hammering on Opal and thought she was, like, especially in the last when she first says goodbye to Bolin. Like, there's something about the way she, like, she just, it, like, the camera stays on her for a while, and, or the, the frame stays on her for a while, and she's just giving this weird stare at him. Um, and, you know, Bolin looks sad, but she just looks, like, vacant. Um, and it's a weird scene, and, and so people have really, have been harping on her. I don't think there's as much evidence in that regard, but it's certainly possible. Um, and, but I hadn't even considered that because I remember the first time I saw the episode, I was like, who is that? Cause she looks very familiar who they grabbed. Cause I, we haven't seen her in the new clothes. Uh, and then, um, and the second go around, I was like, oh, it's Opal. Uh, but I didn't look to see if she was there in the final group. So that is interesting. I think this, so this week we're getting a finale and I think we're going to see a lot of things manifest if, if they are indeed elements of, um, 
you know, betrayal and and secret alliances and things like that. So that'll be that'll be exciting. Um, so th- this is the uh, this is the big showdown. So I, this this was a really there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on in this final final battle. Um, at uh, so of course Korra can't get in contact with the Airbenders in time, and uh, uh, the Red Lotus shows up. Um, so. Yes, I think the first thing I really want to discuss in this, because it is an interesting question, is Tenzin's decision. Um, after the Red Lotus shows up, they, they round everyone up, they put them in one place, and they say, we uh, will not harm you as long as the Avatar turns herself over. And then Tenzin decides, in a very cool moment, don't get me wrong, that he's going to blast all of them away, and then uh, say that he's not going to let that happen. So, um, but he's putting everyone in, in danger when he does this. So, how did but you he, feel? But they're already in danger. I mean, as far I don't think he has any reason to trust the Red Lotus in this instance. And I think, and by and by the way, um, he, he kicks Zaheer's ass until the rest of the Red Lotus shows up. Oh, so I yes. think it's fair to say that he probably thought he could take Zaheer and like he can handle this at, at least long enough to distract them to get away, which he does. Uh, so he does succeed when what happens, we'll get into whether or not he <laughs> makes it out. Well, he he doesn't succeed in getting everyone away because they when they finally get to the bison, they've all left. All the bison fly because... Um, That's true. We don't see them get away. We don't. That's why this hmm. whole thing is so dark. It just yeah. no one escapes except for Kai. Um, so, yeah, so this is really dark. But that, okay, so this fight is, at, I think it's, it's in my new favorite fight um, seen in all of uh, Korra. Um, previously, it was the Tanrak Unalak fight in um, season two, because that was really, really cool. Uh, it's short, but it's such a good moment when they're in the, you know, in the dark and they're trying to when they uh, after Korra frees uh, her family. Um, so that was a really great uh, moment. But I think that this this scene is just so cool. We have Mingwa and um, Mingwa and Kaya fighting. And like the coolest moment when Mingwa just flings this ice shard at her, um, at her face, and uh, Kaya like catches it in the air and throws it back at her. Oh man, that was this absolutely phenomenal. And then we have Boomy fighting Gazan and doing his weird Boomy stuff, which you would expect him to do, and that that really is entertaining, even if it ultimately was um, futile. And we get, uh, of course, the the airbending fight, which we've never seen before. Yeah, that's true, and I didn't even it didn't even register when I the first time I watched it that we had never seen an airbending fight before. But of course we haven't. You know? Why would we? Yeah, and it's it's so funny to think that we're getting so much stuff with airbending that you assume just kind of subconsciously. Well, like they must have done something with airbending like this before, but they couldn't have done it in the first uh, series, right? Because there was only one of them, right? As per the title, and they couldn't really have done it even in Korra up to this point because you know there's. Tenzin and there's Korra and then there's the kids. Right. But now and this yeah this this airbending fight is just so unbelievably cool. And by the way, this whole fight sequence used great made great use of slow motion. Yes. Um, I don't remember if that's something that Korra has done in the past. Slow motion. The last ever did it. Yeah. Uh, no, no, slow motion is definitely a thing. In fact, one of the best moments in the original series is in um, the Blind Bandit, and that's when after Toph has done the. She does her seismic sense, which is in slow motion. But um, after that, there's like there's this amazing shot of uh, like debris going past your eyes, 
Um, and she obviously. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. And it's such a cool moment because, of course, she can sense it even if she can't see it technically. Um, and and then she, you know, does some incredible thing and then defeats the um, the other Earthbenders. And that oh, God, it's it's absolutely incredible. So yeah, there's a lot of slow motion in this, but it's um, there was even slow motion I think earlier in the series in. Um, uh, in this season, I think with uh, a, a couple of times, but one of them. Oh, um, Mako! He cuts Mingwa's uh, arm in um, in Misty Palm's Oasis. Um, oh, that's right. You know yeah. what I'm thinking of, though. I'm thinking specifically of the speed ramping that they do. Uh, they have used slow motion, but um, you know the moment where um, where uh, Zahir flips over Tenzin's head and where. Uh, yeah, they do speed ramp. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah, for Yorkia, sure. Kia, Yurkaya. I'm not sure how to pronounce her yeah, name. Kaya. Yeah, Kaya. Kaya, uh, yeah, flips around the uh, the shard of ice and throws it back. Yeah, it's not just these shots of slow motion. It's the speed ramming that's the regular than to slow than to ra- the Zack Snyder approach. Right, right, right. Um, but they're, they're, it's so effective, and it's so, especially the moment where Seer goes over Tenzin's head. It's so, it's, it is kind of cheesy, but it's just like, in the context of that moment, and just the, the fight that they're having, it's so cool it is cool and you know i don't think it's cheesy because he goes over his head and you're like you're like oh no because every time he does this in the past he does something cool in the past it's because he's just outclassing everyone around him but he's fighting tenzin who's an actual airbending master um and so uh tenzin immediately um like counters it and it's super cool and he also does the move that ang does in the opening sequence um that awesome like weird airbending planking thing yeah he's like on one leg and shoots him in the in the chest and you know this shouldn't be cool at all i've always said that (laughs) what i find so funny about this is that you know avatar makes it awesome but um you know i've always thought telekinesis and and invisible powers are stupid and shouldn't ever be done in like film or whatever because they look moronic like there's no way to make that look cool um it's really cool in comics because you can draw lines you can draw all of these things uh that that make things like Storm or you you can make Xavier from, you know, X-Men look really cool um, or Storm or, or whatever, but you can't... It, on on screen, it's always looked very bizarre because it just looks like people are furrowing their brows at each other and it just looks strange. Um, but here, we because they can draw it out, you can see the gusts of wind, gusts of wind and everything and it it's just really... It's fun to watch in a way that I... You know, you wouldn't necessarily expect because, um, you know... Or you can you can imagine in your head how water might look cool, how fire might look cool, how, how earth might look cool. But airbending is like, well, I don't know. And and but it just two people airbending is just a really cool fight. And they also the way they use their environment, you know, they're all jumping around and climbing things, and they're all like super agile, and that's really cool too in a way that other benders certainly aren't. Yeah, it's true. And I although I I will say that I'm a little disappointed by the Mingwa and um, uh, Kaya fight. Really? Be- well, I feel like. I don't know. I, I expected more of Kaya. She kind of, she doesn't hold her own. Like I, you expect Boomy, who's not an experienced airbender at all, right, to uh, be kind of just running away. And I do like that he, uh, <laughs> he like jumps on Gazan's back. Yeah, yeah, jumps on Gazan's back and bites his shoulder. Right, just right. completely aban- abandons bending altogether, and I love that instinct because, of course, the instinct of a bender would never to be never to do something like that. Right, right, of course, but, but he's just, like, but he's clearly a non-bender. Yeah, definitely. And I think I love that they're exploring that um, the idea of people who get acquire bending abilities late in life mm-hmm. and how they use them. And I think that's a great example. Whereas you're right, like that's something Tenzin would never do, right? Because he would to him like this is his airbending is his method of defense or offense, and it's as natural to him as. 
anything else. Right. And it's the most As powerful breathing. thing he can do. Whereas <laughs> Boomy is not used to airbending, and he's far more used to just hand-to-hand combat. Right, right. Um, and, and, and what he's, Kazan, the, what he's doing is, is he's using airbending in a way like to do what he would do normally. Yeah, ex- well, exactly. Yeah, just more agile. Yeah, exactly. And Gazan, I think the reason he gets the upper hand is because Gazan is not used to that kind of combat. Right, right. He doesn't right. expect to be kind of be leapt on and have his hair pulled and stuff. Although it doesn't actually, you know, end up working. Um, that's a Although really. I will say, Mingwa coming out of the air with the eight, ten or whatever oh, gosh, octopus yeah. tentacles, terrifying. T- absolutely, one of the scariest images in Korra to yeah. this point. I mean, her her face is just scary. Everything about her is scary. She's Seri- like, and she has Azula's uh, voice, voice actress, doesn't oh, she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is even. I mean, that's she's. You know, I mean, she was easily one of like probably. She's probably like ninety eight percent of why I like Azula so much. You know, so um, <laughs> certainly this was. A huge thing. I will. I will say. There's. There's a couple of people have pointed out that they'd love to know what Mingwa's backstory is to give her more context because it's very unclear as to how she's able to bend, and do, like you're supposed to be able to do Tai Chi to to, to water bend, and she's certainly, um, you know, can you like you could almost believe it if you got like some sort of phantom limb story or some sort of other backstory to why she can do it, but there's no um, story as of yet. So I think that um, is there an implication? Do you think that they her arms were cut off to prevent her from being able to bend. Oh, I wonder. That's, that's the assumption I've I've been making for so that, some reason. There's no, I don't think they've ever even implied that a little. But for some reason, I just so that she didn't have. So she had it. arms before. Yeah, and that she was for whatever reason so dangerous oh, geez, that they decided so to dark. cut her arms off. Which is yeah, oh, that's God. like seriously brutal. Uh, that's that's some messed up uh, justice system work right there. But yeah, but I mean, I guess it's possible. Yeah, and that that would be. I mean, that would make it all the more horrifying that she learns to use what she learns to waterbend without her arms. Yeah, and and effectively, very very effectively. Um, yeah. So yeah, no, it's possible. I always just had the impression that she had an accident, or maybe she was born that way. And it's entirely possible, and and that being born that way would make more sense. So that that's that's how she learned to bend. Right. Right. And but so for some reason, that's just what I assumed. Jeez, <laughs> very dark. Um. Well, I mean, I guess at, at this point, I wouldn't put anything past the show. So, speaking of. Um, so we have so after uh, Gazan and Mingwa totally um, beat Kaya and uh, I mean the other thing also is that there's not really a lot of water around and Mingwa happens to have her own water, which is an inherent advantage after the the fountain water is used. Where else is she going to get anything to fight them with? And that's really the final moment. You know Kaya can't do anything because Gazan shoots a couple of you know boulders or whatever at them or. You know, the little rock a lanch thing. Um, and uh, there's nothing for them to do. What he, uh, All Boomy can do is airbend, which he does. And Kaya has no water. So there's nothing, you know... Katara always carried around a little flask of water so she could have something to defend herself with. Um, oh, and also, by the way, the one cool, really cool moment is they have, you know, when Mingwa's firing one of these, or she's, like, slicing the air with her... Oh, that's what happens. She doesn't shoot an ice thing at at, at Kaya. She doesn't she like slice through the air with like an that's ice. That's right. She, she slices with like an icicle, and then and Kaya, Kaya slices it off. She breaks and it off. Directs it back. Yeah, that was oh my that's, gosh. Oh, that's a great. That's it, it's it's so cool. And also, but just before that, we saw it slice through like a statue. So like it's very yeah. intense, um, intense moment. Um, so then they fall off the the uh, the balcony thing, and uh, you know, there's this discussion of like, what are we going to do? You know, that we're going to die. Um, and their discussion of death, I think, really lends to why we're so concerned about Tenzin at the end of this, uh, because they're very seriously concerned. Of, and and I, yeah, so 
Tenzin's busy beating Zaheer, and then the rest of the uh, the Red Lotus show up, and uh, it's a really well executed moment. It's great. Oh man, it's so the way they do it is he's trying like he can handle a- any three of them, but right. then there's always the fourth who will come in from behind yep. and, and knock him out. Yep. And the, they do that a couple different combinations of that, and they don't like uh, directorially. They don't dwell on that kind of the math of that, and they don't like. Nobody says, "Oh, he can't. He can't handle four of them, but he can handle three of them." But it's very, it's very clear. And oh my God, there's one of the most just stunningly bold choices that a director has ever made on Korra is the way that they pan to the side while he's being beaten up by the Red Lotus, yep. and so that he, he's everything's concealed by the wall. Yeah. And the film grammar there is usually like that character's either dead or being beaten so horrifically that like they we can't, can't show, show you yeah. this we don't want to show you this that's what that you know that's what that moment that shot is designed to tell us is like right. we are hiding your eyes from this because it's too horrifying well and, and and just before that we have that moment where um you know Tenzin says as long as oh, I'm yeah. still breathing um, oh I, th- I just... thought he was going to do it I thought Zaheer was... was I, like, and maybe he does. Up. Maybe it was just they didn't want to show it because it was way too much, you know? Um, I, You know, it's very unclear as to what the plan is for him, but I, yeah, that was... That was hard to watch, and we get no resolution. I, I don't... I don't get how uh, they could end an episode like that. Um, this, does this, <laughs> feel, this, this feels like it was cut in half. Like, this literally feels like this episode was meant to be part of it uh, in a, an hour-long episode, and it was cut in half. Because you're right, where they ended, the scene they ended on is so bizarre. Is just, is yeah, Kai wakes up in the tree and flies off on the bison. And that's it. There's, yeah, there's, you're right. It's not just a cliffhanger, it's just editorially, it's a weird choice. to, to the, the rhythm of the episode is very strange. It feels like it should go on. Well, you um, know, I wouldn't... I, I just think that final shot is strange. I think it's fine to... What they did was... Uh, a very, um, you know, like an episode of Game of Thrones, like I hate coming back to Game of Thrones, but I keep doing it. But an episode of Game of Thrones might end on some really depressing note yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, plot-wise, it makes sense. But it's it would like, just go to black or something. It wouldn't exactly, show, yeah. you know, you know, Arya eating pie. You know, like that's just weird. <laughs> yes, it would be like if after the Red Wedding, it cut to like, yeah, like just Arya and the Hound walking down the road. Yeah, you'd be like, and then well, it, and why? Then <laughs> Um, so certainly I think, I think it was sort of to give you a sense that at least, I think it was, it was really just to allay fears that, you know, 15 characters just died. No, they didn't give us that for Tenzin, which is concerning, but they did at least for Kai say, look, he's not dead. I wonder if it's because Kai is a kid. I wonder if even that was a Nickelodeon thing that was like, all right, you can't, you, you can't end the episode with us thinking that a kid is A kid died. Yeah, exactly. At least have him be have a ridiculously impossible way out. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And you know, actually, something interesting about Kai, I, I remember now from, we were talking about classism earlier, I think another reason I like him as a character, and by the way, this episode is really good for him, I think. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, he has a great, great moments. He takes initiative, and he just, he doesn't do anything unrealistic. He doesn't, like, beat Pali or anything. He just... He man, takes her on. But he takes her on, yeah, exactly, which is noble, and, and it's the kind of thing we expect from, like, the old series, and I really like that. And the other thing is he's also not a privileged character, and so that's really cool, too, to have um, a character who's more like the old, you know, the old series, who, um, not only because he's a kid, but also, you know, 
uh, Genora and all of them are all living on Airbender Island, and they're all, you know, they have a very, you know, sort of posh, you know, lifestyle, luxurious lifestyle. Uh, but, and they're, you know, they're the ki- child, they're the last airbenders, they're, you know, um, Tenzin's like a dignitary and all this other stuff, so, um, but, but Kai is just some kid, you know, he's just some, and I know he's, his backstory is perhaps a little, um, cliche, but it's certainly, in terms of social status, um, very different than anyone else on the boat, which is pretty cool. I wonder, I, I, you're, I really like this moment for Kai, I agree, and it's turned me around on the character, a little. I didn't hate the character before, but def- I really like him now. Mm. But I wonder if it, it does bother me a little that we don't see this change in him at all. Um, and I get why that has to happen because we. Oh, I disagree. I think we him. do. I think we do. I think we see it a couple of times. We see it in the when he's captured for the Airbender Army. That's we, true. We yeah, see it. True. We see it in the episode where they save the Bison. He makes a lot of decisions there. Um, oh, I, you know what? I completely forgot about that episode. You know what? Uh, you're right. Yeah, never mind. He yeah, does. There's a lot of like uh, groundwork for this. So when he makes that choice, you're like, you know, he's just a good, a good dude. <laughs> um, so that was really great, and I was glad he took uh, um, Pelion, even though, you know, it's like incredibly depressing. Um, yeah, and so I guess that sort of leaves this. So now we have an hour long finale. I I didn't realize they were going to be airing two episodes at once. Well, by the way, who was flying the airship? I I wondered that too. <laughs> I wonder the two. I had the feeling they just forced someone to do it, um, which would not be hard to do. Uh, I'm willing to spend, suspend my disbelief because they do it regularly. Earlier in the, even in the season, they had you know when they were trying to get out of the city, they bullied someone into driving for them. So, all right, you know. The other thing that's possible is that um, all she's she's not like maneuvering the, the 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 airship's not maneuvering and doing like weird things. It's just going in a circle. So it's yeah. possible it's just on like autopilot or something. It's probably uh, Guru Lahima flying the thing. Yeah, it's Guru. <laughs> By the way, that deliver a speech about something or other. We actually, episode. there's actually, um, uh, I think it's official. I someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it's official. There's a um, uh, Jai Bao quote, the guy who the grove is named after that um, that Zahir always goes to. Uh, that's going to be in the next episode. Oh, I saw this, yeah. Yeah, maybe as a quote from Zaheer. I tried not to read it and get too into it because I don't want to know. Um, but I'm excited because there's more. I'm glad he won't be referencing... Well, he probably will. We will get at least one more um, uh, Guru Lahima quote. I think um, it refer- the quote references the title of that episode, so I, I'm pretty sure that is for real. Right, right. I'm sure we'll get that. But I, I just I like the fact that we're getting something that's not Guru Lahima. Although, like I said, we probably will. Get yeah, one more, okay. <laughs> one more moment of that. <laughs> I have a feeling that there's been a lot of buildup with this stuff he's been studying. That Zahir has been studying. That he's going to do something we haven't seen before in the finale, and that's going to be like the thing that no one can do anything about. And then they're just going to escape, maybe with Korra. Well, they still haven't paid off that whole the thing he said in the first his first scene about the the special technique about yeah. the levitating. And there's an implication that that's astral projection, but it's not I clear. Think. Yeah. I, uh, well, you said that at, and, uh, when he said that, and I wasn't sure, but then there's also that scene where he seems to be astral projecting, and we know he can project into the spirit world. Right. So clearly, there, yeah, there's something going on with Zaheer, his whole thing with Guru Lahima. I, I'm, <laughs> I think, back me up on this, do you think he was an Air Nomad? Who? I, Guru Zaheer. Lahima? Oh, no, Zaheer. Zaheer. Was an Air like, Nomad? Like growing up. You mean like an Air Acolyte? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Air, Air Acolyte, that's exactly right. Um... 
it's entirely possible. I mean, that it would, would explain ex- his knowledge of, of airbending and airbending culture. But air acolytes only were a thing because that's weird. That's genuine. That's genuinely weird because he. It, yeah, it could have been a long time ago. That means he would have been following Aang around because air acolytes only appeared uh, because there were no more airbenders and Aang wanted little followers to follow him around. I mean, they started as his fan club, um, which is uh, which is funny. I mean, if you, I, if you have you read the comics at all. Uh, no, no. Um, the, the comics are really interesting. And by the way, just, I, I wanted to throw this in earlier and I didn't, um, but the, it's good to know that Zuko and Aang ended up becoming best friends, uh, but there's a lot of tension throughout the comics, uh, between them as they're still, you know, hammering out their, their differences. And, and really it's down to not evil and good. It's down to like governance styles, who's right, who's wrong. Um, who should be able to live where, that kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, back to the... Uh, uh, air acolytes. Right, air acolytes, right. So in, in the in the comics, the um, they introduce the idea of air acolytes that are, again, born out of the fan club and, and, and goes around teaching them everything about uh, air nomad culture that he can remember and put together. Um, and that's really cool, and it's, it's something that um, that they've carried over into into the series with, with Tenzin and his, his little clan. Um, but yeah, I think that would explain it. It's also possible he's just a, a hobbyist, you know, <laughs> which uh, which also would, would be fine. But I would find it odd if that's the case, because it seems like he would have said something sinister when he first met Tenzin and said, like, you know, I knew your father or something. Well, I wonder if Tenzin already knows that, because he obviously, I think he knows... You know, he he probably knows more about Sahir than he let on to Korra, and maybe he. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason that that would have to come up in their conversation, probably. Right, uh, if that's if the case, already knows. Certainly, and I, the only reason I mention is it is because the series, the series, the season has already reminded us of air acolytes. I think Pema mentioned it a couple episodes ago that she was an air acolyte, and that's how she met uh, met Tenzin. Right, right, right. So I I think it's because there what there's always been a question of how he learned airbending so quickly, and how he's you know despite. Um, being nothing compared to Tenzin, he is Impressive. very, yeah. very good at airbending. So I think it would make sense if he had just. Well, see, I get the impression that his um, his fight. The reason he's good at it is that he because f- every bending style is just a, f- a martial art, and he, maybe he was just good at that martial art. And now when he does it, air comes out. You know what I mean? It's like a, a sort of an, an obvious continuation of the same basic idea. Um, so maybe that's it, is that he was just, he was always, he learned all these things with the, like, fanciful thought that, hey, what, you know, if I was an airbender, this would be really, this would be even cooler than what's actually going on. Um, and that, that's, that's why he knows how to do all these things so quickly. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I, I guess it's, uh, it remains to be seen, certainly they're going to reveal more uh, on that front um, going forward, because his backstory is um, obscure. And we're not really sure what's going on there. And I, I think that's really cool because it's it, it gives an air of mystery that we don't fully understand. And unlike Amon, by this point, we had already learned his backstory. So I think unless they shoehorn it into the finale, that's an implication that we're not going to get a resolution right away. Yeah, it's true. Uh, although, like you said, um, like you said last time, there's a pretty good chance that the Red Lotus will carry into next season. Yeah, right, and that's so what I'm saying. So a... if this is not his if this is not his conclusion, then certainly there's... You could reveal his backstory in the final episode, have it be, like, a big thing, and then, you know, leave us hanging until next season, which would be super exciting. Um, and, uh, I... yeah, and by the way, leaving us hanging, I, I think it's funny that you, you've, you've told me in the past that you don't like uh, Empire Strikes Back. 
because it kind of it, it doesn't end. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't feel like an ending. It feels like an episode. How, it doesn't. I think that's how this season is going to end. I think we're going to have an Empire Strikes Back ending where the good guys really don't win and they kind of have to retreat uh, back to their headquarters. Uh, battered and broken right and well you know but i mean that's like as we as we said before that's how season two of, of avatar the last airbender ends i think this is a that's a great way to end a, a series certainly um the reason that you know people have criticized empire strikes back for that ending is that they say it's it was when the series really became about episodes and less about standalone films and that it's all part of a trilogy and you know so there's a lot of like elements to that that um you can like or dislike or whatever, but it it's different than a movie that doesn't have like a real ending, you know, or has like an ambiguous ending. Um, you know, a lot of European films and things like that tend to have those sorts of endings, and and that's one thing. But those aren't like part of a franchise; those are just one-off, you know, drama films or whatever. When it's something like Empire Strikes Back or or you know even The Dark Knight to some degree or some of these films, they're part of a franchise, and so they feel like episodes. In this case, it is an episode, so. Um, I think that's a big deal. And the other thing was, you know, there is a sense of closure you get from a, a moment like that. Um, and it's, it's, I'd have to go back and really watch like Crossroads of Destiny to really get an idea, an idea of what the, what's concluded, what's not. And, you know, if they really leave you hanging in a terrible way, but isn't the implication at the end of Crossroads of Destiny that no, Aang, Aang does wake up at the end. He does wake up at the end, I think. Yeah, he must. I don't think they would have let them get away with not having at least like a shot of him opening his eyes or something. Yeah, I feel like because I mean, he. I know he wakes up on the Fire Nation ship in the third season with like a full head of hair, and he's been sleeping for like weeks or something, and everyone uh, is surprised to see him, you know, walking around. But I think he has to have opened his eyes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the point being that I, I would be totally down for a repeat of that. And again, I think I've said this before. I really think um, that this will make comparing book two of Korra to book one of Avatar making a lot more sense, and then book three to book two of Avatar The Last Airbender, and so on and so forth, because that makes more sense, and then just leaving season one as, like, a standalone miniseries. Um, because it's following the arc very similarly. We had a big Titan, you know, monster fight at the end of the first book. We're going to get a... Theoretically, we're going to get a, you know, a, a convoluted... Or not convoluted, but a, a chaotic... Um, maybe unsatisfying ending to book two, and then we'll have a huge finale for for book three. Uh, for book That's four. true, and and, if, and following that logic, um, I guess we the villain of season one uh, was really Zhao, and the Fire Lord was kind of in the background, yep. and not really a factor. So if that's true for like uh, Unalak in season two, then maybe right the Red Lotus becomes like the big deal, and may, or maybe next season there's an even bigger force behind the Red Lotus that we. That we don't even know about. That's, yeah. that's still completely on the table because we know so little about what the Red Lotus really it's, is. Or it's definitely Ko the Face Dealer. <laughs> Ooh, oh, that would be interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just that's like the go-to for everyone in the fandom to just blame everything on Ko because he hates the Avatar, and so clearly he's behind everything. Um, I think they just want that character <laughs> to come back. He's awesome. He's so creepy. Oh yeah, no, that's. Uh, it's that scene is still gives me nightmares. It's a terrifying scene. It's it's absolutely petrifying. Um, but yeah, so absolutely. So uh, this week we have uh, two episodes: uh, Into the Void, Into the Void, right? or Enter the Void, Enter. something like that. And the second one is called Venom of the Red Lotus. Venom of the, all right, excellent. And as we discussed, those are seeming to become more and more uh, obvious um, references to the fact that 
the Red Lotus is perhaps uh, not going away anytime soon, um, which is exciting. So uh, I look forward to discussing the finale with you next week. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to see how this book ends. Yeah, me too. All right.